precious Savior, our refuge, our Lord, our friend, we are so thankful that we can come to you with everything, for help for anything. We can draw near to you with confidence because our help comes from you, our great high priest. You understand us because you became like us for your earthly days, and now you represent us before our heavenly Father. You, Jesus, have been faithful where Adam and Israel and we ourselves have not. You are our perfect mediator. Each of us came here this morning with much on our hearts and minds. And so we're going to come now before you individually, silently. First hear our silent prayers, Lord, of praise and thanksgiving. We are thankful for who you are. Next, Lord, hear our prayers of confession and of the concerns that are on our hearts this morning. Father, we also want to raise up all whom we know who have just started or are about to start a new school year. We raise up our students of all ages, the teachers, the staff, and all administrators, all who work in education. Give them energy and creativity and patient endurance and all that they need to get off on a solid footing. And we give you praise, Father, for those in Maui who through your grace escaped the fires, some very near and dear to folks in our body. And we ask for comfort, mercy, and extra faith for those who have suffered great losses. And we ask for wisdom and discernment for those dealing with the aftermath of this disaster. May everyone sense your care in whatever their circumstances. We do experience so much tension in this world, Lord. We have celebrations and sorrows, beginnings and endings, health and sickness, life and death, knowing that you are watching over us, caring for us, that you are with us through it all brings us peace. Nothing is hidden from your sight and we approach your throne of grace with confidence so we can receive your mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. We raise our worship service to you today, as well as next service, our children's and youth classes. May all that happens on this campus today, as we visit all the tables and everything we do, bring a blessing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the word of the Lord. Okay, well, good morning. If I can get you settled down, the hardest job is to get you to stop talking. <laughs> okay, well, great to see you talking with one another. Uh, PBCC is a low church. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with this language of low church and high church. Uh, we don't have liturgy, we don't have ritual like a high church. No bells and smells, no priests and fancy robes. Uh, we don't even ordain. Like other Protestants, we affirm the priesthood of all believers, yet we don't call ourselves priests, and we are suspicious of church leaders who do, who call themselves priests. Didn't priesthood get left behind with the old covenant? So priesthood seems strange to us. But we also affirm that Christ fulfills all three covenant offices that were previously filled by different people in Israel under the old covenant, prophet, priest, and king. And each of these was a mediator between God and his people. Each was of the people, one of the people, but didn't necessarily represent the people. The prophet and the king represented God to the people, and the priest represented the people to God. And the book of Hebrews presents Jesus in all three roles. These three roles were uh, occupied by three different people uh, in the Old Testament. And the prophet represented God to the people. His role was to proclaim the word of the Lord, to say to the people, thus says the Lord. Now, the people didn't necessarily want to hear what the prophet had to say. Hebrews begins with God's prophetic word. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Over a long period of time, God spoke through many different prophets, mostly to his own people, to Israel and Judah, uh, but sometimes to other nations. But now he has spoken a greater word. He spoke this word not just through his son, who was a prophet, but even as his son. So Jesus himself is the word which God has spoken to us. In the first sentence, that first sentence continues with a sevenfold description of the Son. And the sixth statement there reads, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And later in chapter two, we read that he was crowned with glory and honor. So God has installed him as king, and not just any king, but as the highest king, the king of kings. And as our scripture reading from uh, Philippians 2 affirmed, as Josiah read so capably, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that ultimately everyone will bow and confess that he is Lord. Now the king was supposed to represent God in ruling his people, and ideally he led the people in righteousness and justice. So that's the first office, 
the office of king, now occupied by Jesus. Jesus was God's prophet and his word incarnate. The risen Jesus is exalted and enthroned as king. And these are affirmed not only in Hebrews, but throughout the New Testament. However, the presentation of Jesus in the third office, the office of priest, is unique to Hebrews. And it is by far the most important of the three offices in this book. Yet I think that most of us understand little about how Jesus serves as high priest. In part, this is because Hebrews is a difficult book that is rarely preached and taught. We have our favorite verses in the book, for sure, but much of the book is unfamiliar. It's also because we're unfamiliar with the world of priests and how they function. Um, and the institution of the priesthood for ancient Israel is given uh, in Leviticus and Numbers, territory into which we rarely venture. So even if we do read into the central section of Hebrews, we don't understand the background context of old covenant priesthood against which Jesus' priesthood is to be understood. Now we get a first hint of Jesus as priest already in the fifth statement of that first sentence. He provided purification for sins. This is the role of a priest. Now today we come to a major transition in the book of Hebrews. The preacher has already briefly mentioned Jesus as high priest at the end of chapter two, the beginning of chapter three, but now he turns his full attention to this topic. And his presentation of Jesus as high priest covers six chapters from here near the end of chapter four to near the end of chapter 10. So we're gonna be in this material for quite a long time, looking at Jesus as our high priest. Now there are two aspects to Jesus's ministry as high priest. There is a one-time ministry where he has provided purification for sins once and for all on our behalf. And there is an ongoing ministry of intercession on our behalf before the Father. Now, notice that twofold use of on our behalf. The prophet and the king acted on God's behalf. The priest acts on the people's behalf, representing us before God. So our text today is the preacher's introduction to this long section on Jesus as high priest. So Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16, and I'll read from the NIV. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now the central section uh, of Jesus as high priest is clearly demarcated by this introduction and then a very similar conclusion near the end of chapter 10. And in this introduction, the preacher twice states that we have a high priest. And since we have a high priest, he twice gives an exhortation based upon this fact. Firstly, let us hold fast to our confession. And secondly, let us draw near to God. Now, though this be the introduction to the next six chapters about Jesus as high priest, the therefore and the since with which this introduction starts anchors us back into the previous chapters. 
Firstly, they refer back to the end of chapter two, where Jesus is first introduced as high priest. And we read chapter two, verses 16 to 18. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was attempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, there are numerous connections between this passage and our text today, the end of chapter four. Therefore, also refers back to the previous paragraph that we looked at last week, chapter four, verses 12 and 13. There we found that God's word lays us open to his penetrating gaze. And we need an advocate, a mediator to act and speak on our behalf. And this is what we have in our great high priest, in Jesus. Now a priest serves as a human mediator between the human and the divine realms. And the interface between the human and the divine is dangerous territory. Uh, It's dangerous for God and humans to come together. And this was especially so for ancient Israel because God wanted to dwell with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you. But how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? Won't the holiness of God consume the sinful people? Won't the sinful people contaminate the holiness of God? It seems a recipe for disaster. Yet this is what God wanted to do, to dwell in the midst of his people, the infinite creator with his finite creatures. This is God's ultimate goal, that he and his people dwell together, that he draws people into his eternal glory. And for ancient Israel, the interface between the divine and the human was the tabernacle. Israel was living in tents, as they journeyed from Egypt to the land of Canaan, from the land of slavery to the land of promise. And so God instructed Moses to have the people make a tent so that he could dwell and travel with his people. And this tent or tabernacle uh, served also to transfer the divine presence from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, its permanent final resting place. The tabernacle was a tent surrounded by a courtyard, and the tent was divided into two chambers, the outer holy place and the inner most holy place, or a holy of holies. And in this inner chamber was the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence there. The two-chambered tent and the courtyard formed a three-tiered structure of holiness. And the tabernacle was set in the midst of the Israelite camp, So moving outwards from the courtyard of the tabernacle was first the priests and then the Levites and then the other tribes of Israel, three per side. Beyond them outside the camp were those who were unclean and far beyond the camp were the other nations, notably Egypt from whose land they had come and Canaan into whose land they were going. It was highly structured space and the holiness of the space increased from the nations on the far periphery inwards to the most holy in place in the middle. And in the tabernacle, God embraced his people by placing his presence in their midst. But the tabernacle was also about exclusion. The three zones of the tabernacle itself were demarcated by curtains or veils. 
and these served as barriers to entrance. They excluded most and admitted only a few. The people were told to draw near to God, but they could come only so far before their way was blocked. Israelites could bring their sacrifices to the courtyard entrance, which was protected by a screen, but they could go no further. There they would kill the animal and then hand it over to the priests who were able to go through the screen. They would take it inside the courtyard to the altar of burnt offering. Priests could pass through the second screen into the tent, but only if they had priestly business inside the tent. And only the high priest could pass through the veil into the inner sanctum, the most holy place, and then only once a year. And he had to take burning incense with him so that the smoke veiled his sight. So the tabernacle was about both exclusion and embrace. God and his people dwelt together, but it was an arrangement full of danger. And priests mediated between the people outside the tabernacle and God's presence in the inner chamber. Now the supreme act of mediation occurred once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would pass through the veil into the most holy place and he took with him the blood from two animals, one for his own sin and one for the, for the sin of the people. And this blood of purification, he would sprinkle on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, usually known to us as the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And then he would return outside. And this language and imagery of the Day of Atonement permeates this whole central section of Hebrews. Now Jesus, as our high priest, is our mediator. We read here that he has ascended into heaven. Literally, he has passed through the heavens. Each year, the high priest passed through the veil into the most holy place, but then he had to come back out. But with Jesus, it's as if the horizontal spatial structure of the tabernacle has been turned vertical. Jesus passed through the veil of the heavens into the true sanctuary. He is now exalted above the heavens. He has entered into God's rest, into God's presence, there to stay. And the preacher will return several times to this entrance into God's presence. Now, who is this high priest? He is Jesus the Son of God. He is Jesus, the Son incarnate as a human being, as one of us. And risen and exalted, he remains Jesus. He did not put off his humanity when he entered God's presence. He took his humanity there into God's presence. And then he is the Son of God, present with God from the beginning, agent of God's creation. He is on the side of the creator, not the creation. But in Jesus, the Son of God, the human and the divine meet, the creator and the creation. He is, therefore, the perfect mediator. He is the perfect high priest. He is one of us, but now in God's presence. He is there for us. And having entered once, he is still there. He has sat down at God's right hand, indicating finality. Therefore, since we have such a high priest, the preacher's exhortation is, let us hold firmly our confession. NIV has interpreted this confession as the faith we profess. What is it? 
Well, this confession is first mentioned at the beginning of chapter three, where Jesus is described as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, as apostle, he is the one sent from God into our world to become human like us. And he has now returned to God as one of us to be high priest. So this is the truth we hold on to. It is bedrock reality for us that the son was sent into the, our world to be one of us, Jesus the man. And that this Jesus is now in God's presence as one of us. Verse 15 explains the importance of holding this confession because of the sort of high priest that we have. He is described first negatively, what he is not, and then positively, what he is. But the negative statement is a double negative, which makes it a positive. Our high priest is able to empathize with our weaknesses. Now, most translations state that Jesus sympathizes with us. And that's what the original NIV had, uh, the 1984 version. But NIV has now changed it to empathizes. And sympathy and empathy are not the same, though they are frequently and easily confused. Uh, I'm no psychologist, so I'm going out on a bit of a limb here. Um, but I think of sympathy as feeling for someone else in their suffering, whereas empathy is feeling with that person. It takes someone who has been through what we're going through to empathize with us. Many more are able to sympathize with us. So I think the NIV is right to make this change. It's a significant change from sympathize to empathize. That Jesus, our high priest, is able to empathize, not just sympathize with us, is made clear in the second statement. He has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus was like us in every way, just as we are. And this is an echo of an earlier verse, chapter two, verse 17, where Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. Made like us in every way. Tempted like us in every way, just as we are. His full humanity extended to be tempted in every way just like us. This is why he can have empathy with us in our temptations. Not just pity, not just sympathy, not just compassion, but deep empathy. He understands. He knows what temptation is like. He has been there. And so have we trials and temptations we sang? Yeah, absolutely, yes we do. But take it to the Lord in prayer. He knows. Now people point out that Jesus wasn't actually tempted in every way, just like us. He was never a woman. He was never married. He never had kids. Uh, he was never on social media. Uh, he never worked in the pressure cooker of Silicon Valley. Many other situations we face today. Um, on the other hand, he faced unique temptations because of the power at his disposal. Uh, temptations that we will never face. I have never been tempted to command stones to become bread. I've never been tempted to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and entrust myself to angels to catch me. I've never been tempted to rule the world. But Jesus faced these temptations because of his unique position as the son of God. These were things he could actually grasp at if he wanted. 
if you are the son of God, said Satan twice. He was indeed the son of God, so he had awesome power at his disposal. But would he use that status and that power and that position to his own advantage? Would he act with reference to himself? Would he act for his own sake? And to understand this statement that Jesus has been tempted in all ways just like us, it's helpful to remember the context. At the end of chapter two, we first read, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. What is the nature of temptation? Well, that's identified in chapters three and four that we've looked at the last few weeks. The Israelites that God brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses were tested or tempted in the wilderness. They had heard God's voice, but would they remain faithful? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But they did not hear God's voice. They did not heed it. They did harden their hearts. They gave in to temptation. They failed the test. They were unfaithful and disobedient. So every temptation or test comes down to this. Will we keep hearing God's voice? If you are the son of God, said Satan, would Jesus listen to Satan? Or would he keep listening to God's word? Especially as he was in great need after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He himself suffered when he was tempted. He suffered there in the wilderness. He suffered under the garden of Gethsemane what we call the agony in the garden, the struggle. This marked the beginning of his passion, what we call the final 18 hours of his life, from Gethsemane until his burial. Now, passion sounds a benign or even a positive word, but in this context, passion means suffering. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. And because he suffered, from being tempted in every way just like us, he is able to do more than just sympathize with us. He empathizes with us. He has been where we are. He is able to help. The one way in which Jesus was not like us is that he was without sin. So some people ask, how can he really be like us if he did not sin? Well, in resisting temptation and not sinning, he was being truly human. A disobedient human is a broken human. He was restoring the true humanity to us in not sinning. If he had given in to temptation, there would have been no resurrection. When Jesus died sinless, death held one on whom it had no claim. The resurrection was God's vindication of him and a defeat of death. If Jesus had given in to temptation, there would be no exaltation and enthronement. If Jesus had given in to temptation, he would not be the perfect high priest because his own sins would need atoning for. He would have been just one more unfaithful, disobedient, sinful, rebellious human being. Just like Israel. Just like us. But we have as high priest one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Thanks be to God. In verse 16, the preacher gives his second exhortation. Uh, it's introduced by another, therefore, based upon having such a high priest. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Now we've seen that for old covenant Israel, God's presence with his people was as much about exclusion as it was about embrace. The various categories of people could draw near, but only so far before they found their way blocked. Access was limited. And if you were impure, unclean, diseased, or damaged, you couldn't draw near at all. You were outside, beyond the camp. So the tabernacle, as we've seen, was simultaneously a place of exclusion and of embrace. It was a fearsome thing to get too close to God. When the high priest entered the most holy place, he had bells on the hem of his robe so the people outside would know that he was still alive in the presence of the awesome God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, he was undone. Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the God Almighty. It was dangerous to get too close to God. But now, under the new covenant, we are invited to draw near, to approach God. And we can do this because we have a mediator between us and God and an advocate for us before God. Jesus has already entered into God's presence, his rest. We will enter into that rest at the end of our earthly journey. We're in the process of entering. We're not there yet, though. But meanwhile, we are invited to draw near. We draw near in faith. How near can we draw? Into the very presence of God through Christ Jesus. And we approach with bold confidence. When we first encountered this word, translated boldness or confidence, uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, it's a key word in Hebrews. It means more than simply boldness. It means the confidence that you can have, especially in the presence of someone of high rank. Because of our high priest, we draw near to God with the confidence that we can actually be there, that we belong there, that there's a place for us there. The confidence that God welcomes us and is pleased to see us there. And as I said a few weeks ago, that's a confidence I think many Christians lack. We don't feel that God is pleased to see us. This is one reason why understanding the high priestly ministry of Jesus is so important. It assures us that we are welcome in God's presence, that we can have confidence of being there. This is why Charles Wesley could write, bold, I approach the eternal throne. We have a place there. Now, perhaps some of you are familiar with the famous photos of President Kennedy working at his desk, the Resolute Desk, there in the Oval Office, while his son, John Jr., played there in his presence. Um, John Jr. is about three years old or so at the point. Um, so I didn't have time to look these out. They're easy to find. Um, young, young, young John, Sorry, that's a bit difficult to say. Young John had this bold confidence to draw near and enters his father's presence, even there in the Oval Office, the epicenter of executive power. He was there happily playing as his father was working. That's the confidence that we can have of entering into God's presence, the true center of executive power. With this sort of bold confidence, we approach the throne of grace. Seated there is one who does not confer shame upon us, which is what we might instinctively feel. He does not give us a look that tells us we really shouldn't be there. 
were intruding. He confers grace, favor, and honor on us because we are in Christ, because the risen Lord Jesus is there for us. We are his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to own us as such, and God loves us as such, his sons and daughters. Now there's a purpose to this drawing near, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. God delights to show mercy and grace. This is how he revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And Jesus, in chapter two, is described as a merciful and faithful high priest. And the purpose of this dual gift of mercy and grace is to provide timely help. Uh, ever since the earliest English versions, even before the King James, this has been translated as to help in time of need. And literally, it is well-timed help. Help that is provided at just the right time. Timely help. The right sort of help for the right time. So what time is that? When do we need this help? And what sort of help is needed? Because Jesus suffered when tempted just like that, us, he is able to help those who are being tempted. End of chapter two. So it is help when we are being tempted, which is basically all the time. Help to resist temptation. Help to keep us following Jesus. Help to endure and persevere. Help to remain faithful as we continue our earthly pilgrimage. And in his conclusion at the end of this long high priestly section, the preacher will repeat his main points in his conclusion. Since we have confidence to enter, and since we have a great priest, let us draw near, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So note the repetition there of the key terms. Having a great high priest, let us draw near. We have confidence and hold on to our confession. This confession of Jesus as the apostle and the high priest. And the preacher wants his brothers and sisters and us also to know how fully welcome we are in God's presence through Jesus, our priest. And there we can find help in our time of need as we face temptation on our earthly pilgrimage so that we not be like the wilderness generation that refused to hear God's voice, that hardened its heart, and then there, at, in chapter 10, at the conclusion, he immediately continues, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. So all the exhortations in the book of Hebrews, and there are many, can basically be summed up as two. Look to Jesus, come to Jesus, draw near. He is our great high priest already in God's presence. And secondly, meet together, encourage one another. We're on this journey together to end to, towards God. And today is the first of our two Connection Sundays. And the focus today is connections here within the church family. There are many ways for us to meet together and to encourage one another, as you can find out um, during the break.
Now, some of the earliest artistic depictions of Jesus were as the good shepherd caring for his sheep, even carrying one on his shoulders. But when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, it became increasingly common to portray Jesus as a king and to place his image high up in the dome of a church or a cathedral. This type of image is usually known as uh, Christ Pantocrator, Christ the ruler of all. Such is the image I'm using for this series. It's a beautiful mosaic of Christ Pantocrator in the cathedral in Cefalu in Sicily. Uh, and that previous image was in Monreale, also in Sicily. But Christ became so exalted that he was far off. He ceased to be a mediator. He ceased to be one of us. He ceased to be approachable. There was a need for a mediator to the mediator. And to some extent, Mary was exalted in order to fill this role. Petitions were directed to her so that she might petition her son. To some extent, human priesthood was created in order to mediate between us and the mediator. But this is a far cry from Hebrews with its presentation of Jesus, the Son of God. The eternal Son became just like us in all respects, including temptation, save without sin. Now exalted through the heavens to God's right hand, he is not far off. We are bid to draw near, to approach. He is approachable. And when we draw near, we find one who not only sympathizes with us, who not only pities us, but who empathizes with us. As the hymn says, we sang, Jesus knows our every weakness. Therefore, he is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses and provide timely help. Just the right help at just the right time timely help whenever we face temptation, which is every day. Timely help so that we keep following him faithfully so that we endure and persevere until we reach the end of our earthly pilgrimage and we too enter into God's presence where Jesus already is. So let us encourage one another to look to Jesus and to persevere and to be faithful in our journeying together. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the ways we can draw near to God is by coming to the table. And here we find mercy and grace uh, for our time of need. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered his disciples, and I, I don't know if the band wants to come up while transitioning into communion. Uh, gathered his disciples together for a final meal um, and took this Passover meal, which is all about that deliverance from Egypt, and reshaped the symbolic elements around himself. That uh, the bread, which represented a hasty departure from Egypt, would now represent his body that was given for them. The blood, the cup that represented redemption from uh, Egypt would now represent his blood given for them. So as we come to the table, I want to lead us in uh, the prayer that I used last week, the Collect for Purity. Uh, so let's pray together. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our heart by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you 
and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When we are in Christ, following the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are bid to draw near, to come to this table. The table is all about hospitality. It's about embrace, uh, not about exclusion. We come to this table of embrace and we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we do so in remembrance of the Lord Jesus and we do so as a way of uh, reinforcing our faith, reinforcing our confession of who the Lord Jesus is, that he is the apostle, the one whom God sent into this world to be like us, to participate in life, our life, and the high priest, the one who has offered up the perfect sacrifice, who has made the offering of himself that he took into the true sanctuary, into God's presence, whereby we are cleansed, we are made pure. So we come to this table in faith and we take these symbolic elements and we eat and drink in faith. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and uh, blessed it and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Seat together. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This is my blood which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins for a new covenant. Let us drink together. Let us pray. God, our Father, our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these gifts. We thank you for your invitation to come to the Lord Jesus, to come to the table, and to eat of this bread and drink of this cup. We pray that by doing so, you would strengthen our faith, that we would indeed remember this great gift. Father, I pray that uh, having eaten and drunk, that you would strengthen our faith so that we see the Lord Jesus Christ at your side as our faithful high priest, as our mediator, our intercessor, who continues to intercede for us. Father, we come and we find mercy and grace. Lord, you know that we face temptation every day, but we have one who is able to help. And pray that uh, we would avail ourselves of that help from the one who is our friend, the Lord Jesus, our elder brother. And give us grace that we might encourage one another to remain faithful in this earthly pilgrimage as we journey towards your very presence. Keep us faithful, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.